Hey, before we get going here, Luke and I wanted to shed some light on something far more important than anything that happened on the field Saturday. As most of you listening probably have heard by now, either from our posts or from other members of the Notre Dame community who have come out to show their support over the past few days, uh, we lost a good friend in, in a tragic accident on Thanksgiving morning. His name was Zach Plants. Uh, if you follow Notre Dame football, you're familiar with the Plants family. Few families, if any, exemplify all that is great about the University of Notre Dame and everything we love about the football program more than the Plants's. We interviewed Zach's younger brother, Logan, earlier in the year, and from that conversation alone, you could tell how strong the bond is within their family and with the school. Their father, Ron, played football at Notre Dame in the early 80s. Tyler Plants, the oldest sibling, played football and graduated from Notre Dame in 2014 and is currently on the Notre Dame coaching staff. The youngest, Abby, is currently a student at St. Mary's. Zach graduated in the class of 2015, played on the Notre Dame rugby team, and was a great friend to so many, including us. When we first started releasing these to the public, Zach was one of the first people to come to us and offer support and said he would do anything he could to help us out, and he delivered. It was Zach who put us in touch with Mike McGlinchey. It was Zach who vouched for us to Tony Rice. And it was Zach who put us in contact with Tom Zubikowski, and when that fell through... Nobody was more upset about it than Zach because he thought it would be a great opportunity for us. He was always so supportive and helpful with no personal gain, and he was like that to so many others because that was just the type of dude he was. Always willing to help a friend and gone far too soon. Yeah, um, I mean, you, you summed it up pretty well there. Zach Zach was just a guy that if, if you were in his circle, he would do pretty much anything for you. Um, he was immensely loyal a fervent supporter of both Notre Dame football and uh, my beloved Chicago Cubs. And, and we really bonded over that. And uh, he was a guy that, that frankly, I thought I'd be shooting the shit with about the Cubs and, and Notre Dame for the next 50 to, to 60 years. And um, it, it sucks that, um, that that won't be the case, but he was a, a tremendous friend um, and a tremendous supporter of, of us and, and really, helped us get us to where we are today uh, with this podcast and we'll forever be indebted to him for that. And just the way that he did that unsolicited, I think just speaks to kind of the, the guy he was. Um, he would do anything for his friends. He was a, a blast to be around and the, the outpouring of, of support we've seen in the last couple of days since he passed has just been incredibly moving for those not aware uh zach was running a november campaign um, for for men's mental health he set a goal initially to raise a thousand dollars for men's mental health during the month of november and while growing out his facial hair he hit that goal pretty easily so he upped it to two thousand also reached that prior to his passing and i just looked at it as we're recording this on monday night and since he passed, um, we are now up to $76,000 have been raised in Zach's honor um, for that campaign, which puts him at third in the world for a very large organization. Just speaks to the, the impact he left on so many around him. Zach, we miss you already. Um, I know you're up there watching the Irish, and, and hopefully you can pull some magic to, to lead us to a national title this year. But we, we miss you, buddy, and uh, we'll remember you forever. Yeah, you're exactly right. I don't have much more to add to that. Um, other than this one story I wanted to share, I was looking back 
through old text messages between Zach and I before we did this, and one of the last conversations we had was just two weeks ago, and I, I jokingly told him that we're going to have to start paying him pretty soon for, for all the help he was providing us, and he replied, absolutely not. I'm here to support you guys. Um, everything he did for us, his friends, and really everyone who was lucky enough to interact with him came from the goodness in his heart, and uh, that's how I'm always going to remember him, and I'm sure that's going to be the same for so many others. So as we do this show and any show from this point forward, we'll always have Zach in mind. We miss you, buddy. All right, let's try and talk some ball. Notre Dame beat the number 18 ranked North Carolina Tar Heels in Chapel Hill on Saturday by a score of 31 to 17 in one of the most impressive performances from the Irish this season. Uh, and what was a very difficult weekend for so many of the Notre Dame football community, this team put on a performance that everyone should be proud of. We're going to get into our three things that we liked and didn't like from Saturday's game, and then we'll start to look ahead a little bit. As the regular season winds down, we start eyeing the ACC championship and potentially the college football playoff. Uh, I don't want to jinx us yet by saying we're a lock for that, but we can at least start looking at that considering Notre Dame's ranked number two in the country. But Luke, the Irish might not have rolled over UNC in the way that you and I were hoping for, but still a pretty great performance all around. So what was your biggest takeaway from the game on Saturday? They... May not have won the game how we were anticipating. However, I would argue that the way they did win the game was better than what we were anticipating. Um, I mean, if you had told me before the game that Notre Dame would shut out North Carolina in the second half, especially without Kyle Hamilton, I don't know that I would have believed you. Uh, really just kind of shows the depth this team has and, and kind of just how unshakable they are, really. Um, and, and that's really a tremendous trade and, and one that I'm excited to watch unfold as we get into December here. Yeah, when Hamilton went down, I was getting flashbacks to the uh, Cotton Bowl against Clemson when Julian Love went down. And then Clemson was like, all right, we're throwing it right at Dante Vaughn the rest of the game. I thought we might see a similar plan of attack from North Carolina, but um, you can't really attack a safety if you can't get rid of the ball. No, no, that is true, and the D-line was, was all over him all day, but you're right. Um, when when Hamilton went out, um, I, we were definitely both nervous, I think, you more so than I, um, but I believe what I said Typical. was, what I believe I said was, we can score with them, which didn't wasn't really true because nobody scored, um, but I also said the defensive line keeps getting pressure on them. I'm not too worried about it. That turned out to be very true, and thankfully it was because um, DJ Brown and Houston Griffith really did not give up any big plays and, and really performed admirably in uh, uh, Hamilton's absence. Yeah, I think I was so nervous because I wasn't at work for this one. This was a Friday. I was off, so I was watching at home, and I wasn't required to keep myself completely composed, which might have been the issue here. I was pacing around my living room, like reminiscent of the Clemson game, at least at when Hamilton went down, I was like, oh, God, this is going to be bad. And I have at least Pete Sampson come back me up. He was tweeting end of the world stuff as well. <laughs> I don't I wasn't at that point, but um, I was nervous. But it was still an awesome second half. It was just domination from the defense. And it was really exciting. And I think you're right. Like, even though it wasn't the shootout, like the offense didn't light it up like we might have expected. Um, I just think this was a super, super impressive win and one we're both going to remember for a long time. Absolutely. And, you know, you mentioned watching it at home, which is a change. Um, I watched this one 
at somebody's house who was very eager to, to hear me break down my viewing experience on this week's episode. So I'll get into it a little bit. Um, I was at the Waitula's house in McHenry, Illinois, on the game for the game on Friday, and uh, you know, Mr. Waitula prior to the game moved a couch in their living room to create more space because there were some people over, and he was a little bit nervous because I guess the last five couch moves he had pulled, so to speak. Notre Dame had lost all five of those games, um, but but we broke the couch move curse on Friday, so that was huge. Really solid viewing experience with with people who, um, you know, are as passionate as I am about Notre Dame, which is not always the case, and so I could be myself. Um, but a great win, and, and you're right, one that we'll remember for for quite some time. Yeah, I think I'm slowly converting my roommates. Well, I'm not converting them into fans, but uh, I'm watching this game with my the lunatics. <laughs> not not lunatics yet, but they're both like one's a Michigan fan and one's a Penn State fan. They both went to Penn State. What? How, wait, what, wait, 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 wait. He went to Michigan, but he's a Penn State fan? Reverse. He went to Penn State, but is a Michigan fan. Why? It's blasphemy. I know. We give him shit about it all the time. But anyway, he said my grandpa would roll over in his grave right now if he saw me rooting for Notre Dame. And he was during the Clemson game, too. I think they're more so rooting just for not the epic collapse that would happen. And yeah. maybe they don't want me to like completely lose my mind if Notre Dame lost, which to be honest, it's pretty fair. I, I, I don't blame them mm-hmm. for feeling that way. Yeah, no, that, that makes sense. Um, we can get into the whole Michigan Penn state confusion at, on another episode, I guess, but <laughs> yeah, no, um, you know, as we've, as we've mentioned on this podcast time and time again, uh, good viewing experiences are, are crucial for, for sanity. And ultimately I'd argue wins, even though we have absolutely no impact on game performances, but, but mentally I'd like to think we do. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Notre Dame's undefeated since we started releasing these to the public. Yeah, that and should we start getting credit? People are wondering that and Mulligans. Um, since I started going there, we haven't lost a home game. I, I mean, I think I might be going to South Bend this weekend for Syracuse just to go to Mulligans. So who, who would have thought? <laughs> You're really going to South Bend for a Syracuse game? You have a disease, dude, honestly. Yeah, not for the game. I can't get in the game, um, but I don't think they're letting anybody in. But I'm going to Mulligan's Friday night at 2.15. <laughs> drill, the drill gotta live, has got to live on. You should get an Uber from Chicago. And just uh, be like, I need to go that to has been discussed. That has been discussed. So I'll, I'll, I'll let the, the listeners know next week what actually happens, but uh, it's something we're thinking about. Hey, good to consider. All right, should we start talking about this game now? (laughs) Absolutely. Let's get into it. All right, I'll lead us off. Um, For like, first thing, linebackers not named Woo Woo showing out and ultimately stuffing the run game, which is particularly funny because early on in the game, you sent a text in a group chat where you're like, Drew White regressing as a player is not a good development. And then right after that text, I think he got a tackle for a loss. He ends up getting the game ball, which is just perfectly poetic. Yeah. He's five tackles, three solo, two tackles for a loss. That was hilarious. Yeah. I mean, that's not exactly what I said. I think I made a comparison to a former much maligned Notre Dame run uh, linebacker who I said he was turning into, but we can leave it um, to the, the listener's imagination as to who that might be. But yeah, he definitely proved me wrong, and he, and he played a hell of a game. He bowled out. And how about Maurice Leofau coming out of literally nowhere? Leofau didn't, he got one play. He was in for one play against Florida State. He didn't play at all against Clemson. Comes into this game, plays... 35 snaps. It's it's pretty wild. Um, and I think it just, again, shows you just the genius of Clark Lee at that buck linebacker spot 
we went into the season not sure that we had any Buck linebackers, and now this year we've had three guys have three standout games at that position, and Jack Kaiser against USF, Shane Simon against Clemson, and, and now Marist, uh, Leah Fowl against North Carolina. Um, just shows you how excellent Clark Lee as, is at his job and why we need to extend him ASAP. Yeah, uh, I'm going to just say savor him while you can, Notre Dame fans. I don't I don't know if he's going to be around much longer, but we can get into that later. I really want to praise Leo Fowl for a little bit. Um, it was interesting to hear Brian Kelly said that they, they opted to go with him in this matchup because he's more lengthy, he moves better in space, and, and can defend the pass as well. And, and North Carolina's whole operation on offense is the RPO, the run-pass option. And early on, Notre Dame was getting beat. Clark Lee was having the safeties play pretty far back and I mean if you're the quarterback Howell in this case making that read you see the safety's first step is back you're either looking for the run or an underneath route and by doing that you basically put all the pressure uh, on the front seven to defend the run and the pass which is a pretty difficult assignment for these linebackers and they stepped up to the challenge in, in a big way Leofau as a blitzer was incredible give a lot of credit to the defensive line too but just the way that the linebackers are able to attack they don't miss tackles too they completely shut down the North Carolina run game. It's hard to have a RPO game when you can't run the ball. And it's no secret. North Carolina's line isn't great. And a big reason why Javante Williams and Michael Carter have so many yards a season um, is because they're incredible after contact. But Notre Dame's linebackers, they just didn't miss tackles and it completely shut them down. Yeah, no, an outstanding performance by that group. And and really just makes you feel so good about all three levels of this Notre Dame defense. Um, just the way they, they mesh together on Friday. And I kept hearing Javante Williams is the best running back you've never heard of. Well, I've still never heard of him. So um, let me just say that much. Yeah, he had that first run for like 26 yards. And then after that was basically absentee. But speaking of development... How about Javon McKinley? You said a couple weeks ago it, we can certify him as good, but he's clearly the most reliable receiver Notre Dame has right now. Thinking about that Louisville game, it's just it's like two completely different players. He finishes this game with six receptions, 135 yards, doesn't have a score, but you pointed this out to me before we started recording. Javon McKinley has as many 100-yard games this year as Claypool in 2019 and Miles Boykin in 2018. Like That's just nuts to think about yeah it's almost unbelievable to me um but it's true and yeah he's legitimately good so go figure (laughs) and if he keeps on developing he's just a problem he's huge first of all when North Carolina was running out that cornerback who was technically supposed to be in high school but he was the number one cornerback recruit he's my little brother's age I'm pretty sure like which is just kind of mind-blowing to me and Javon McKinley's like my age (laughs) <laughs> yeah, he's just trying to get in the NFL as fast as humanly possible, which I'm sure he will in a probably successful career. But Javon McKinley was just on some grown man shit in this game and dominated him. Also, another grown man I want to talk about is Nick McLeod. Uh, quietly having a great season. McLeod transferred from NC State, and his transfer, it sort of just completely flew under the radar, probably because he committed in early May during the middle of the pandemic when we weren't even sure we would have a season. And he missed the 2019 season due to injury, but he's clearly the best cornerback. And there was this awesome sequence that really exemplifies like the swagger that the Snow Dame defense is playing with. So we're in the fourth quarter. Deami Brown, he takes a hitch on second down. I think it's like second and five. Gets a first down. And he like stiff arms McLeod. Do you remember this? Are you talking about Kings and Queens? Do you see what was on the back of his jersey? 
Oh, that clown, Kings and Queens. <laughs> yeah, I, I, that guy was annoying as shit, and I'm glad he got flagged because he had no business to be talking as much shit as he was. Okay, well, that's my point, though. So he gets the first down, and he, like, stiff arms him. It's not, it, it really wasn't impressive at all. The whole North Carolina receiving corps was talking a bunch, which was not justified, really. But then it's a few plays later, third and nine, Sam Howell's looking at, at Brown the whole way, just staring him down. McLeod's on him like a glove, and then pressure comes. Howell ends up getting sacked, and then McLeod returns a favor with the trash talk. It goes on, and then it leads to Brown getting an unsportsmanlike. Given that he went to NC State, huge rivals with North Carolina, um, he talked even more trash after the game on social media, and I just loved it. You could tell he came into this game with one goal in mind, and that was to dominate, and I think he had an awesome game. Yeah, well, Kings and Queens should probably change that name to Peasant on the back of his jersey because that was ridiculous, but what do I know? He he did torch Bracey a couple times. Yeah, well, okay. <laughs> Moving on, I mean, you touched on a little bit, but the, the defensive line prowess, and this has really been a theme the last month or so. They were just outstanding again. Um, Notre Dame had six sacks. Sam Howell said after the game it was the most physical defense he had played against in college, and, and that, that all starts up front. Um, and honestly, they were getting held every play, and barely any of them got called, but Heinish, um, Ade, and, and Dalen Hayes, and, and really all the boys were just menaces in the backfield all day. Um, Ade had two sacks, also had a couple great plays on runs on third down that I, I don't know why North Carolina thought they could outrun him because they couldn't. Um, Foskey had a sack as well. Ademolola had one, and and Tavagaloa, Omosa, and Riley Mills each had half a sack too. Um, you know, going into this year, I think we were kind of unsure of this group, especially after losing two draft picks in, in Julian Aquara and Khalid Kareem, and and they've been flat out dominant the last month. And I keep saying this, but it just shows you how Clark Lee develops players and. It's at an extremely high level, and it's not just an off-season thing. Like it's happening throughout the course of the season, and you don't see that at a lot of places. But it's happening with Notre Dame's defense, and it's making them more and more dangerous with each passing week. Yeah, I think I mentioned this to you earlier. It reminds me of like a smear Bilal how in the Louisville game, a lot of people were like, "Oh God!" Like the linebacker situation is even more dire than we thought. And then by the end of the year. Bilal's one of the most consistent defenders and gets picked up in the charges and actually, you know, playing in the NFL. So it's pretty amazing how things change from day one of camp. I think part of that, too, is the strength and conditioning staff. We've kind of mentioned it before, but like what Bayless has going on, Notre Dame is peaking later on in the season, which wasn't the case in the early Kelly years. Like November wasn't always a good month. Thinking back to uh, 2014 when Notre Dame went 0-4, they just got tired. They looked you know, kind of out of shape and a little bit slow and, and dinged up by the end of the year. Not the case anymore. No, not not at all. And, and speaking to that, I guess, you know, theme of development and, and depth, um, we talked about Kyle Hamilton getting ejected briefly, but Houston Griffith and, and DJ Brown were, were more than admirable fill-ins, which inspires hope for next year. Um, you know, I think a lot of people were worried a.k.a. you, Woj, um, when he did get tossed in the second quarter. That's just kidding. I think everybody everybody was okay, worried. You keep singling out me, but everyone was worried. Well, dude. Griffith and DJ Brown, I would say, exceeded expectations with their play. Um, played 23 snaps each. They honestly weren't even really targeted, and, and a lot of that is due to the constant duress Howell was under from the D-line and the linebackers. But 
good to see those guys play adequately and, and get some confidence going into next season um, and, and really this stretch run if they're called upon again. Um, so that was also really good to see. And, and then finally, you know, the, the 14 personnel salute at the end of the game for Notre Dame's last touchdown was just a really, really fitting tribute. Um, you know, for those not aware or that saw, uh, Notre Dame punched in its last touchdown in 14 personnel with, with four tight ends and a running back. And Tyler Plants um, works very closely with our tight ends. And, and if, for those who know the Plants family, that there's nothing more they love than Smash Mouth football. Uh, Tommy Reese gave a, a really beautiful tweet dedicating it to Tyler after the game. And, and the funny aspect of this to me is that for years what we've been hearing from the old Notre Dame fans, you know, people my dad's age and older, the, the gold seats people, if you will, they've just bitched and moaned for Notre Dame to run the damn ball more and establish the run, um, whatever the hell that means. Well, guess what? They're getting that this year, and it's courtesy of Tommy Reese, who's arguably the most maligned player of the Notre Dame, I don't know, uh, program the last 25 years, and and Tommy just sends out 11 ogres to bludgeon the opponent to death. I mean, for God's sakes, you had X receiver Ben Skaronic in, in the center double teaming the nose tackle on a touchdown. Like the, it's just absurdly beautiful, and, and just kind of goes to what you were talking about with Bayless earlier, the physicality that Notre Dame plays with and just the brute strength that they're just going to beat the shit out of people is beautiful, and it was a beautiful tribute. I know it's fitting, too. I think Golick Jr. tweeted this earlier in the year that Tommy Reese mentioned when he was in college that if he could come back and play football as a, as a different person, he would be a pulling guard. And, you know, that sounds like a joke, but then later on he confirmed that that was a real quote from Tommy Reese, and it's showing um, what he likes about the game and sort of what he wants utilizing. The best part about that 14 personnel play is you can see every single North Carolina player. Like, it's it's helmet to helmet, hat on hat, on the line of scrimmage. They got a down lineman for every single lineman that Notre Dame has, and it just doesn't matter. <laughs> like they know it's coming. I think Notre Dame had ran ten plays in the fourteen personnel coming into this game, eight of which were touchdowns. It's just like goal line. Yep. We're gonna score. You can't stop us. See you next week. Yeah, well, I know the analytics guys hate that for the yards per carry thing, but uh, I love it. <laughs> I would like to see how many, in all of college football, how many times any team has has run 14 personnel. I need like a pie chart to see what Notre Dame accounts for out of that entire group. Yeah, it's a good question. Like, I almost feel like I'm watching like a, some like high school team like run like the Veer offense, like just like smoking people. But whatever, it, it works um, when we get down there. Yeah, my grandpa, may rest in peace, this would be... He's like, dream, Notre Dame team. There is nothing, like literally nothing in the entire world that infuriated him more than a team passing within the 10-yard line. <laughs> like, not just at the goal line. It was like, if you get in within 10 yards, you better be running the damn ball. So hopefully Papa Woe just watched this from heaven, and I can assure you he approves of this Tommy Reese offense. Absolutely. Who doesn't? All right. Was there anything that you didn't like? from this game a lot to like <sighs> yeah unfortunately there were a couple things um <clears throat> and some of them are more broad not really necessarily Notre Dame but just complaints I have to get off my chest if you will um first off <laughs> this is a safe space yeah uh targeting being an auto ejection is just the dumbest thing ever um I, I will acknowledge that was 
an incredibly and unusually stupid play from Kyle Hamilton on that third and 20. Like, you just just wrap up on that. But I digress. Targeting should not be an, an ejection automatically. You know, it used to help us when it would get Redfield off the field, but it could have screwed us Friday. Um, like, if you're going head hunting, then sure, throw them out. But if it's a bang-bang play, like, an ejection is just stupid and really has the potential to turn a 15-yard penalty into a game-changer. You know, thankfully, Notre Dame's defense said no to that, but I know a lot of people feared it, and I've mentioned it a bunch on this podcast, and we've seen it before with Stephon Tuitt. So they really need to have a tiered targeting level, um, you know, system. Yeah. and like basketball. that just should not be... Yeah, exactly, like the flagrant foul thing. Yeah, there should be a flagrant one, which is like, okay, hard contact, but you're not ejected. And then a flagrant two, which is like, okay, that was purposeful, dirty play, you're out of the game. I agree with you. Yeah, like, I think there was one in the playoff game or the Natty last year that was just, like, blatant, like, clear as day. Like, that guy shouldn't play football. But um, that, like, seriously, like, you just can't lose your best player on a play like that. And and just another rule that, that college football needs to dig deeper into. But He knew it, too. Oh, yeah. I, I mean, I think everybody in the in the in that was watching the game knew it. But <clears throat> I've given targeting enough runtime today. Um, something else I, I absolutely hate, and it's becoming a weird theme, in the Chicagoland area, Amber Alerts during Notre Dame games. Um, listen, I don't know what the hell is going on, but we've had a weird run of of child abductions in Chicago. You can ask Tyler Williams for his theory on them. Um, although, what I've seen in pretty much all of these is that it just turns out being some weird custody thing, and the kid's fine, thankfully. However, these things are so damn annoying. Like, showing up on your phone is one thing. Taking over the TV and then having to read it out loud for you is another. And we got one during the game right after the big pass play to McKinley in the third quarter, and, and I went apeshit. Um, I tweeted something <laughs> up along the lines of parents shouldn't let their kids get stolen, and some jamoke, I guess, just who just searches for people bitching about Amber Alerts on Twitter told me that it was, in fact, a double homicide, and you can oh get a recap God. of a game, not a life. Well, listen, I don't care, um, because it was also, like, Damn, in a that county. that guy kind of owned you. It was in a county, like, 20 counties over. Like, not even close. So we need a better way to broadcast these or or take geographical boundaries into effect. And here's the thing. <laughs> I can't believe you got Amber Alert owned. That's all time. Yeah, we, we get out of this Amber Alert and Dora just shanks a field goal when it finally cut away. So I blame the Amber Alert because I have that irrational, like, you know, thing that when we can't watch the game, um, it's our fault and that Notre Dame doesn't do well. And so that was totally on the Amber Alert. So we got to figure that out. Um, that that's, that's really paramount for me. Uh, but that leads me to it. Like, Dora just doesn't give a shit about kicks that don't matter, I think. Like, it's it's wild. He just can't hit chip shots. Um, I know he was 5-for-5 five five in the Clemson game. We needed all of that. But, like, he just doesn't give a shit about kicks that don't matter. I almost respect it, but we're going to need you to hit kicks going into the playoffs. Yeah, that it was not just a miss. It was, like, gross. A shank. A shank. And that was like extra, well, it wasn't extra point length, but it was close. It was a 32-yarder. It was it was a chip shot, yeah. But, like, this is, I guess, Jonathan Dora, though. He's never missed an extra point. I'm knocking on wood as I say that. When we need him, he knocks him down and, and always has. And I, I do have faith in him in, in tight spots. Like, dude's got ice in his veins. Yeah, I don't know. Like, I almost just got, like, kind of like a, 
a flashback, like when I'm talking about him not giving like a shit about kicks that don't matter, but he's hit some big ones and some big extra points. Like kind of like I'm getting like the visual, like when Phil Jackson went to Dennis Robbins house trying to sign him and eventually he was like, yeah, all right, whatever. I'll play. Like, that's like just kind of what I think about like doors. Like, yeah, all right, whatever. I'll hit the kick. But dude, just like <laughs> hit kicks. 45 yarder wind in my face against Clemson. Yeah, I'll knock that down. No problem. Yeah. All right. Whatever. <laughs> He seems very stoic, although he did. He looked very upset on the sideline because he was also playing in his hometown. He's from Charlotte. Well, not hometown, but he's not far. So maybe, you know, that's a little kick in the ass that he needs, and he's not going to miss again the rest of the year. Yeah, um, I, I guess he he was probably not uh, looking to go to he's not here on Franklin Street after that game um, and, and meet up with his buddies because I'm sure they had a bunch of shit for him. But, uh, yeah, just figure it out, John. That's all I'm asking. I hear you. All right. For me, I'm going to start with the accountant, Clarence Lewis, CPA, not starting. Uh, Earlier this year, I joked that I didn't like having a defensive back named Clarence. Well, I still kind of stand by that, mainly because this is pretty much all for the movie 8 Mile. Like The name Clarence is ruined, but now give me all the Clarences because the accountant was listed as the starter on the depth chart, but Tariq Bracey was on the field. Uh, He was starting at the field corner for the first couple drives. He gets mossed. Then he gets beat again by Deontay Brown, and then Clarence comes in the game and takes pretty much all the snaps. Now, like Bracey showed flashes last year against Georgia. He made some good plays. He's still pretty young. Uh, he's not like a natural corner, but Lewis is like damn good. He's young. He's a true freshman, obviously. He got burnt on that deep shot to Brown that was called back because of the holding, but he's playing better than Bracey right now. So I don't know what we're really doing there for listing him as the starter, but then not starting him. Like, let's just keep him in the game, and uh, we'll fit in Bracey later. Yeah, I'd agree. Also, sort of a weird development. Um, Zeke Krell got hurt. This is another offensive lineman injury that, like, no one even noticed, or it yeah wasn't made public. Pete Sampson mentioned in his article that he released on Monday morning that Zeke Krell suffered a high ankle sprain against North Carolina, and he might be out for the Syracuse game, which, I mean, that's not going to affect the outcome of the game at all because Syracuse is absolutely terrible. But uh, Don't get me started. Yeah, they're, they're horrible. I heard you bet on them. That's on you. But losing reps, especially against a bad team, too, because you can kind of, like, dominate them a little bit, build some confidence, losing reps hurts, um, especially going into the presumed ACC championship against Clemson because, you know, we'll get, we can get into this later, but there's talk that the Wake Forest game – um, that's scheduled for December 12th, the Duke's Mayo Classic Bowl, which I'm sure you all have not forgotten. Um, <laughs> that that might not even happen. Wake Forest has got all kinds of COVID issues. It really doesn't benefit Notre Dame at all to play that game, to be honest. Wow, you really only wow, wow, wow. Okay, don't get... They better play that damn game because for all my over seven and a half ACC betters out there, um, I think you all read the fine print and show that the full ACC slate needs to be played for that to hit. So uh, we bet. I don't care if they got to play high schoolers against us and they call the game after the first quarter. We better call play the game. That's an interesting fine print. Most betters, I feel like, don't read the fine print, but that's attention to detail. You're an RKG, as Kelly would like to say. Yeah, right. But still, though, like that game might, you know, might not happen. I don't think it's going to happen, which is going to suck, but. Whatever. <laughs> so, realistically, Saturday's game against Syracuse might be Notre Dame's last regular season game. Then they'd have a bye, and then it'd be Clemson. And, like, you don't think Brent Venables is going to see 
I mean, in the game in the regular season with Jared Patterson, they were running double A-gap blitzes constantly, and Kyron Williams had to come in there and pick up 19 of 19 blitzes. He's going to see a retro freshman in there at center. He might throw everything up the middle, and that's just going to be a lot for a guy that's only had one start. So that's going to be sort of a developing story to follow. But he was listed as the starter on the depth chart today. So who knows what's going to happen there. And lastly, uh, ACC refs remain clowns. I don't like to be like the complain about the refs guy too much because I get it. It's an extremely difficult job happening very fast. But there are two instances in this game where I, I legitimately questioned if the officials were even paying attention or even watching the game. <laughs> like straight up, like UNC's second possession, second to 15, the right of midfield. Kurt Heinisch beats the center and left guard, toasts him off the ball. And the left guard is literally, his arms are wrapped around him from behind. Like he's giving him like a bear hug. And Heinisch is trying to get to Hal. Doesn't happen. Hal guns it, 50-yard gain on that big deep shot they took earlier in the game. It was so blatant. Twitter blew up. Weirdly, Fowler and Herbstreit didn't mention it at all. They showed the replays, and it was even more blatant. They didn't mention it. So that that play shouldn't have even happened. And then fourth quarter, Notre Dame's at like third and nine. Notre Dame's up a touchdown, but backed up in their own territory. Book scrambles, nothing doing. He runs out of bounds. He's at least five yards out of bounds. He gets straight up tackled. By North Carolina defender, there's no flag. If that's on the Notre Dame sideline, it's almost a certainly a flag, which is kind of ridiculous how that works and how refs are so persuaded by like the sideline thrown. But like, what the hell was that? So bad. And maybe this is good karma for when we got a questionable late hit in uh, the overtime against Clemson when Book gets hit in the white and it kind of negated a holding penalty, so Notre Dame had a first down. But like, if that's a late hit, then this is an egregious late hit. And they just flat out didn't call. Yeah, I mean, don't get me started on the refs because I am the guy that says the refs are absolute clowns, unlike you. So, well, I meant more in the sense that like I'm never going to be a person that's like, oh, like the refs like cost us the game, unless it's like the Purdue Minnesota game in which the refs absolutely stole that one from Purdue. Oh my god, that that I'm still waiting to get refunded. By the way, from DraftKings, they said they were gonna. I've never seen the money back, so go figure. But um, Tough betting stretch for you, man. That, like, have you had one? Have you won a bet in the past few weeks? Because we got Tulane, Tulsa, Notre Purdue, Dame, Minnesota this week. This week, Cover Dame, Cover Dame. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. It's been bad. I, also, like how anybody bets on the NFL successfully, I don't understand. But whatever. Let's not talk about it. All right. Well. That's pretty much it on on the North Carolina game for me. I think it was a very impressive performance, and I think a lot of people from a, a national college football perspective, like a lot of people were, were picking North Carolina as an upset. Um, I don't even know if it's more like they actually thought North Carolina was going to win that game, or maybe these analysts and writers and stuff just wanted to see an yeah, upset. That's what it is. They just want a story. Like If anybody knew anything... They had no reason to pick North Carolina in that game, right? Um, it was just looking for a story that wasn't there. As Brian Kelly said about um, Notre Dame after the Iowa State game last year, you just read this team wrong. And to all those writers out there, all I have to say is you just try to create a story where there was none. True, but it did sort of send a message, especially that second half, the way that Notre Dame completely shut down 
that, I mean, like, let's not get ourselves. North Carolina has a really good offense, but they were just completely dominated in the second half. And now you got all of a sudden people are picking Notre Dame to win the national championship, which I don't necessarily like. But I think Notre Dame has solidified themselves as a clear top four team at this point. It should have been already clear after the Clemson game, but it wasn't. And now this sort of reinforces it. And now, look, we've been sort of dancing around this. We haven't come out and said it directly, but this team is fully capable of winning the national championship, which is the first time, really, in our lifetimes that that's been the case, even though they made it to the national championship in 2012. Alabama reduced us to a freshman high school football team um, in Miami, so clearly we were wrong there. Clemson was a super team in 2018, but this team has a very real shot at beating everyone in college football. And, like, I don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves, but, like, that's the goal now. And that's a realistic goal for the first time in our lifetimes. No, it it really is. Um, And it just makes me hope that we can, you know, get to the finish line here as all these cancellations come down um, around us. But, listen, like, this team can play with anybody, and they're not scared by anybody. And, uh I mean, I think it all starts right with the with the guy at the at the top, uh, the guy leading the offense. We haven't even talked about Book again. Why do we do this? <laughs> well, <laughs> we, I think we talked too much about Book earlier in the year. Yeah, than now it's crazy. You know, we we mentioned obviously in the, in the forward here, um, Zach Plants, and uh, I was I couldn't help but think going into North Carolina on Friday. You know, in in like February, Zach was trying to teach me how to play euchre, and uh, one of the (laughs) trump card rules in that game has a term to it, and the term is you don't send a boy to do a man's job. And all I could think going into that North Carolina game, you know, playing a tough opponent on the road, top 20 team, obviously emotional spot for the team. Uh, you don't send a, a boy to, to do a man's job there. And so we sent Ian Buck because that's a man, and he's a fifth-year senior playing the best football of his life right now and appears to be a guy fully capable of getting us to that next level and, and winning a national championship. Yeah, he's playing like madman again, um, like literal madman. That flip pass was – it reminded me – it's like that scene in Major League – very early on in the movie where Willie Mays Hayes makes like that basket catch in center field. And then he comes to the dugout and Lou Brown is like, hey, nice catch, Hayes. Don't ever fucking do it again. <laughs> like that's how, that's how I felt about books a lot. But I mean, he's just on right now. He finished 23, 33, 270 yards. And the way he keeps plays alive, the way we're even running like designed QB runs right now, he's incredible. And you know, when we, hopefully playing in the college football playoff against teams like Clemson with Trevor Lawrence, Ohio State with Justin Fields. When you have a quarterback that you're fully confident can be like, hey, this this guy can go toe-to-toe or at least, you know, take swing for swing, it changes everything. And I think that's a big part of why Notre Dame is a real shot here at the national championship. Absolutely. And I can't be more excited to, to be in Charlotte on December 19th to see us beat the hell out of Pony Boy. <laughs> Pony Boy Lawrence. All right, well, that's about a wrap for this one. We will be back on Friday to preview Notre Dame's demolition of Syracuse and Senior Day. So that'll be a good one. Until then, please rate, review, and subscribe, and uh, we'll talk to you on Friday.